This is an ABC podcast. Lisa Leong with you. When Eva Collins was a child, her parents told her the family was running away from home, leaving it for good. Eva was born in communist Poland after the Second World War and she didn't understand why anyone would want to leave. She didn't know yet that her father was Jewish and he was feeling unsafe and worried for his young family as anti-Semitism grew. And so, begrudgingly, Eva boarded a train with her parents and her brother. She had a million questions but was told to ask none until they got to the safety of a faraway land. In Australia, Eva has built a rich life. She's a teacher, a photographer and a writer with a family of her own. But she's always felt the pullback to Poland. Eva has written a memoir about leaving her home, a book of poetry called Ask No Questions. Hi, Eva. Hello, Lisa. What city in Poland did you grow up in? I grew up in Warsaw, the capital. And what do you remember of experiencing Warsaw as a child? I remember that I loved it and therefore I was heartbroken to leave it. We lived in a pre-war building and because Warsaw was bombed during the war, particularly after the Warsaw Uprising, most of Warsaw, I would imagine something like 90% was levelled. So there were a few buildings standing from before the war which were preferable to live in because they were quite spacious. The apartments were spacious. Whereas after the war, in order to accommodate people, an equivalent of like housing commission flats were built very quickly. So we were lucky to be renting in an apartment in a small avenue at the end of which there were just huge extensive parks. What could you see? What could you smell? What could I smell? Definitely always chicken soup. Somewhere (laughs) somebody was cooking chicken soup. What could I see? I could see beautiful park, which I would cross and go to my school. Everything was interesting, including the socialist statues, which I loved, and the building of the Palace of Culture, named after Joseph Stalin, which was so imposing. And my school, which I loved, where we were taught a lot of things, And the politics were filtered to our level, but they certainly made me feel very safe and looked after by our friends in Russia. Did you have a favourite statue? Did I have a favourite statue? No. I think I liked all of them because they looked strong, they looked confident, and I had a feeling that they had my back. What did your mother do for work, Eva? She worked in a theatre. She was an actress. And interestingly, even in communist Poland, where there was so much control and censorship, for some strange reason, cabarets and theatres had a lot of freedom. And unless you were obvious about it or blatant, you could get away with murder criticising the system. I remember being in the Palace of Culture, which is this huge Stalinist building that looks like a wedding cake that's melting, um, very Gothic in style. I went to see two plays which were dealing with reasons why people want to get out of Poland. And the plays were brilliant. And the ovation was so loud, I turned around to see who was in the audience. 
and like three quarters were people in uniform. And I couldn't understand why would people who were policemen and army people would be applauding, criticize the system that they were part of. So there were a lot of anomalies. You were there watching and observing and taking it all in. Yes. What did you love about watching, particularly the rehearsals? Oh, my mother's rehearsals, the absolute joy, the passion, the laughter. Um, You had to be smart. You had to be very witty. And therefore, they were masters of language. And you could pass the message in uh, couched as humor. And the audience certainly got it. And it was wonderful to hear the cleverness of the language, the music, the singing, the laughter. I loved watching it. I didn't have to be part of it. I just loved being present. What do you remember about your mother's energy? She was very absorbed in it. She loved it. That was her identity, to be a performer. Um, She was out there in coffee lunges, meeting friends, or performing, or touring Poland with shows. I didn't see her that much at home because she was pursuing her career. I think that was quite common to a number of people because they've missed out on the youth because of the war. So when the war finished, I think there was this hunger to make up for the lost years. When your mother was preoccupied, for example, with the summer theatre season, where would she send you? Yeah, well, I was exiled (laughs) together with other children from the theatre to a faraway village in the mountains of Zakopane, which is a beautiful district in southern Poland. And there was a very tough peasant woman who owned two timber houses, timber cottages, and she ran them as holiday places for the children. And a young girl and me, I think I was at the age of seven, then eight, then nine, I would be sent by train to go there, supposedly because the air was very clear and good for our health. And we tried to buy it, but we felt actually quite abandoned. What was the owner of this children's village like? She was a hard-working woman who never wore shoes, who wore a lot of skirts, and she used to move those skirts around every day. The inner skirt would become the outer skirt. She certainly wasn't soft. And village girls used to look after us, sometimes scare us with tales of wolves and gypsies and Jews. And I could hear wolves at night. Well, I don't know if they were wolves or dogs, but they were certainly howling. I knew what gypsies looked like, but I didn't know what Jews looked like. And I wish someone told me so I could identify them and run away should I meet one. Did it feel like a safe place for you? No, it didn't feel safe, but there was this mystery. Um, The close-by forests, the beautiful forests, the howling at night, the possible dangers... And there was a convent nearby. So I started going around because it was quiet, it was clean, it was warm, and it was full of what I thought were floating nuns. 
There were those long dresses. You couldn't see their feet. And my ambition was to get under those dresses and see if they had legs. And they just floated about. And I wanted to be a nun. And they introduced me to Jesus Christ. And in fact, you ended up befriending many of the nuns in this nearby convent. How did they influence you and what you believed in? There was one older nun who was very lovely and very loving, and she gave me a lot of holy pictures. And especially on Sunday after Mass, she would walk me home because there were no lights on the road. One day, she said she couldn't walk me home because the new mother superior forbade her to walk me home because she said she didn't want her to be too involved with me. Her priority was to be involved with Jesus Christ, whom she married. She had a wedding ring to him. And other nuns told me that Jesus died for our sins, mine too. And I was wondering, I was actually quite worried, what did I do that was so bad that he should die on the cross? So seeing he suffered for me, it was only logical I should suffer for him. So I used to pray with my arms raised in the air until I couldn't hold them up anymore. And I felt quite noble about it. I felt through my suffering, I was brought closer to Jesus. That seems like an incredible burden on a small child. It was, but seeing I was moving in the right direction, at least I'd be spared from the flames of hell. (laughs) You mentioned that you were scared of Jewish people. Can you connect how that was and, and, and how this came out of this time in the mountains with the nuns? Um, the nuns didn't say anything that I remember like that, but the girls, the teenage girls in the village who used to look after us, they enjoyed scaring us. And we were gullible, we were very young, so we swallowed it. And, you know, I thought Jews were like Martians, some mythical people. And I was also scared because I was sick one day, I had fever. And I was in the lady's cottage and everything was made of timber, the floors, the walls, the ceiling, and the walls were made of logs. And in between the logs, there was dry hay that packed the gaps. And one day I was lying in bed with fever and I had a shuffle. And I looked up and one of the logs moved back and I was mystified. And then a face of a man appeared, a dark face. He was unshaven. He looked like a convict. And I was sure I saw the devil. So luckily for me, I had a big dish of holy water. So rather than just dip my fingers and cross myself, I actually put the whole thing over my head, crossed my fingers, and it worked. He moved back, replaced the log, and was gone. So I felt very brave, that I scared away the devil. And I told the lady, Mrs. Maria, what I saw, and she just said to me that I had a ridiculous imagination, and it was all in my mind. And then I could hear footsteps on the ceiling, and I again brought her attention to it. And again, she said, this was just ridiculous. I was imagining things. And not until maybe 24 years later, I went back, 
to find out it was all true. I befriended the woman's daughter, who is now an excellent painter, and she mentioned how her mother, how brave her mother was, and how she hid her brother in the attic because the KGB wanted him. And I said, really, can we go back to your mother's house, please? And she agreed. And I said, don't take me there. Can I see if I can find a way? I found a way to the little room. I found a log. And I said, is this the log that he removed? And she said, yes. And I said, do you know what that means to me? Eva, why was it quite strange that you were scared of Jewish people and felt in fact, unfamiliar with the Jewish faith, given your family's identity? Well, my mother wasn't Jewish. She was Christian. She was a Catholic. My father was Jewish, but they hid it from me so that I would never feel targeted. If anybody called me names, it wouldn't apply to me. So they thought it was, you know, a protective act. So it wasn't mentioned at all? At all. So what was the attitude towards Jewish people in Poland at the time? Well, from my experience, looking back, amongst our friends, it was very good because a lot of our friends were mixed, Christian and Jews. I don't know. My parents' friends were incredibly warm, very intelligent, very broad-minded. If anything, that's why I couldn't understand why we're leaving Poland. Primarily, we left because of communism. My father was so much against the regime. He hated it. He hated, he hated being under suspicion all the time. He hated the controls. He hated the fact that often people who were totally unqualified had positions of power and they didn't know what they were doing. Yeah, and that was the prime reason why we left. Anti-Semitism, I think, played a secondary role. When did you find out that your family was Jewish? When we finally left Poland, I was hysterical. I was crying my heart out. I was 12. And my father sat me down and he told me why we were leaving and what communism was about, which was an eye-opener for me. Why? Because my whole ambition was to go to Russia one day and visit the people who were there to protect Poland forever, you know, our brothers and sisters. <laughs> and then he said to me, I wanted to also protect you against anti-Semitism, which is a very long word. And I said, what's that? And he said, it's prejudice against the Jews, and I'm a Jew. And I looked at him, and much to my surprise, I said, Dad, you killed Jesus Christ. And my father looked at me and, you know, shook his head and said, Darling, I haven't even met the man. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> that was an amazing reply looking back on it. I don't know where the words came from. I think I was just subconsciously, you know, I had ideas which I didn't know were there. How do you feel about that now, looking back? I think it's interesting. I think, obviously, I absorbed a lot of things that were out in the community without being conscious of it. I'm very conscious of anti-Semitism wherever it appears. I'm conscious of racism, which affects many people, not just Jews. However, I still have a very strong 
nostalgia and pull towards Poland. Eva, was it that sort of unconscious indoctrination your father wanted to escape from? Definitely. He just did not respect a system which was built on fear, surveillance and control. How difficult was it to leave Poland? It was difficult. I believe in 1956 and 58, they let the Jews go. After Stalin's death, there were a lot of people who married Jews to get out. And my father applied, and he got the permission. And we left. We went to Austria, and then stayed in Austria. And then we went to Italy, which I loved. And I wanted to stay in Bologna, where we had an uncle. And my father said, no, we can't stay here. The further from Moscow, the better. We're going to Australia. Before you got on the train to Austria, your father organised the move of a lot of your things. What did he pack? We brought a whole library. We had furniture made, and the furniture had secret cases. And he bought money on the black market, and he put it inside. He also took a big barrel of butter that stood in the train. And I thought, what's the point of bringing this huge barrel of butter? But you could take out food. And when we got to a hotel in Vienna, my parents squelched their way out of the barrel, taking out gemstones, which they sold here, and that paid for our trip. Why did he need to pack money in the furniture? Because you could only take at that stage, I think, the equivalent of 20 American dollars. And he was 50 or nearly 50 when he left. My baby brother wasn't even even a year. And he felt very responsible to have resources, to have some money when we came here. There was no welfare and he wouldn't go on welfare. So at least he had something to sell that we could live on. But it was difficult because he had to bribe the the police, he had to bribe the customers, agents, and they could easily take the bribe and still dub you in. So there was never any shooting, never any guarantee. And so what what was hidden on you and your brother? Gold brooches which were pinned to our underwear and my brother's nappies. And again, when I said, why? Why do I have to wear those scratchy things? And the answer was, ask no questions. Why on the border of Czechoslovakia and Austria, the border police are walking around with big German shepherds looking beneath the train? What are they looking for? And my mother said, people who are trying to escape and are holding on to the underbelly of the train. And I said, why would they be doing that? And again, ask no questions until we got to the free world. You mentioned Stalin's death as the push that finally allowed many Jewish people to leave Poland. How did his death affect you at the time? Devastating. Why? I didn't start school till I was seven, so I was still in kindergarten because there was a shortage of buildings and the Teachers told us that they had very bad news, that the father of our children died, and we could hear the wail of the siren throughout the city, which was electrifying, and we started crying. 
sobbing. There were just rivers of tears. We felt so abandoned. And afterwards, I came home. Surprisingly, my mother was at home. And I said, Mom, did you hear the siren? And she said, no. I said, how could you not hear it? Do you know what happened? No, what happened? The father of all children died. And my mother said, oh, don't worry, that's coming home soon. <laughs> I said, not him, the father of all children. I thought she was a bit silly. And then my father came home. I said, Dad, did you stand at attention? Did you hear the siren? No, why should I? Don't you know? Stalin died. And my father raised his arms to the ceiling and said, oh, at long last, thank God. And I looked at my parents and I thought they were total freaks. Why does that stay with you to this day? Because it's funny and because it's also telling how they never discussed politics in front of me. The less I knew, the better, the safer everyone would be. And in fact, every now and then they would listen to a radio station which was very scratchy. You could hardly make out what they were saying. And they would always order me out of the room. And when I said, why? They would say, ask no questions, leave the room. And later on, I found out there were two stations. One was called The Voice of America, and the other one was called Free Europe, which were broadcast in Polish by Polish emigres, telling listeners what actually was happening in Poland and everybody listened to it and the government interfered with it by introducing static. So when did you learn the reality of Stalin's rule? On the train out of Poland my father told me all those things. Why was your final destination Australia of all places? Because it was stable there were no wars. It was ordered. It welcomed migrants. And my father said it was such a pleasure that when he saw a policeman on the street, he didn't have to worry. Who sponsored you to come to Australia? Pretend cousins. A man my father met while he was studying English in the night school and he pretended to be our cousin why did they have to pretend to be your cousin? Because we didn't have family here. That's the system which applies universally to all countries. You have to rely on your wits. You have to make connections. You have to have a network. Then you came eventually by boat. How long did the boat journey take? A month, a long, boring, humid, sticky month. The only thing I enjoyed was pulling up at ports where I would see, like in Colombo, I've never seen pineapples, I've never seen dark-skinned people. I was absolutely fascinated by it. I've never seen the sm smell the smells or seen the colours. I remember the Suez Canal, which was absolutely beautiful, the colour of the sand, the palm trees the traders coming up to the boat, selling us produce from Egypt, which we bought those camel, 
camel stools or camels, little chairs that you sit on. Every migrant had them. That was exotic and I loved it. But the rest, it was just sea, sea, sea everywhere. There were no castles in the sea. There were no gardens. There were no princesses, nothing. What was it like when you finally docked in Australia? Disappointing. Why? Station Pier was dark. There were no streamers, no people welcoming us. We got picked up by the supposed cousins and everything was strange. It was, we drove on the left side of the road. We came to the place I've never seen wall-to-wall carpets, which was very Australian. I thought it was so luxurious. Nothing but carpets everywhere, streamlined kitchens, um, a separate shower with a shower attached to the ceiling. So I was very curious. How did that compare to the homes uh, in Poland? Well, in Poland, we didn't have at that stage streamlined kitchens. Everything was a separate unit. We had parquetry floor with carpets like rugs. It was totally different. We didn't have little houses everywhere in the city. We had apartment buildings, always surrounded by gardens or parks. Everything was different. The smells, the color of light, it was very bright here. I had a feeling that even the flowers were bleached because it was so bright. And actually, it's interesting about air conditioning. We had no idea what, what air conditioning was, but the humidity and the heat was so intense that I would naturally open the fridge door and stick my head in. <laughs> it was the only time I had some relief. We've all done that, Eva. <laughs> Now, what was it about outside the house that awed you? I was surprised to see such big backyards. <laughs> I, I expected sheep to graze there. Otherwise, why would you just have a big paddock with grasses? Because that's what we had. And how much care people took in mowing their lawn. And I had the feeling that they wanted to have a velvet green alone outside. That was the idea. People took great pride in those velvety grasslands. You're listening to Conversations. Eva, you were just describing the totally different world you arrived to in Australia as a child. Where in Melbourne did you settle? We stayed in South Caulfield and I went to a school nearby, Garden Vale Central, where I had a strange experience. And then we moved to Windsor and I went to McRobinson Girls High School, which I loved. You mentioned you had an interesting experience at your first primary school. Who was your first friend in Australia? There was a girl called Maureen. She was very sweet. I remember she once invited me to share lunch with her and she said her mother prepared some nice hot dogs. Well, I nearly fell off the chair. I thought, how can you eat dogs? Where have we come to here? But she was lovely. But there was another girl, Lorraine, who said to me, why don't you go back where you came from? 
and because I missed Poland so much, I thought it was so kind of her to wish me so well. <laughs> and I said, I would if I could, but my parents won't take me back. And I couldn't understand why she screwed up her face. A little while later, I dropped my locker key on the ground and she put, stepped on it. She put her foot down and wouldn't remove it. So I said in my best English, could you please remove your foot? And she said, make me. And I thought, how can I make her? She's made already. So there was oh. this language wiped out. And then I had this out-of-body experience. Before I knew it, I saw her face being covered in blood and her hair miraculously traveled to my hands. And the next thing, the headmistress was there, pinned me against the wall and said, you're suspended for two days. Apparently, I smashed her nose. And I was terrified what my parents would say because they were very cultured, refined people. You know, violence didn't exist. And strangely enough, they understood my behavior. So after two days, I went back to school. And then there was another girl. A lot of kids in my school had false teeth already. There was no fluoride. And they really took pride in taking out the false teeth and showing the stamps. I mean, there were a lot of culture shocks, you know, let me tell you. And she also said, go back where you came from, you know, you refer. And again, before I knew it, I hit her. And again, I was suspended. And I was told next time I'll be expelled. But next time I got into McRobb High. And that was paradise. Yeah. This is really interesting, uh, particularly since I'm sitting opposite you and uh, you don't strike me as someone with no. <laughs> all this <laughs> That rage. was an amazing experience. Or should I be very careful what I say Just with you? watch your stepsister. <laughs> Just watch it. <laughs> you mentioned McRobertson High School and you mentioned it was a better experience. How different was it from that original experience and were there any less fistfights? There were no fistfights, <laughs> but what there was, a huge group Australian kids and kids of migrants. There were, I had Italian friends, I had a lot of Jewish friends. And the thing that drew me to them was A, they had a terrific sense of humour, B, they had a sense of adventure, See, they were bright, but most of all, they were very warm and supportive. And I needed that support because um, there was a lot of sadness at home. My mother was not happy here. How did that play out for her? It was very difficult to watch. There's no way my mother would be separated from my father. She would go wherever he went. He hated being in communist Poland. She didn't like it either, but the tool of her trade was the Polish language, was being a performer. And even though she had bit roles on Australian TV here, like police series, like Division 4, and occasional appearances in the Polish community cultural afternoons, it wasn't the same. She felt isolated here, she felt lost, she was extremely sad, and that was very hard to watch. This, this affected me. What did you say? I saw a lot of anger and frustration 
and loss of hope at times, and the fact that she started drinking. It was awful. It, was, it made me feel very insecure. I wondered whether we'll be able to pull through, whether my father would be able to pull through. How much was she drinking and how did it affect her behaviour? Well, she would be out of control and anybody who drinks too much behaves in a similar way. And I didn't know what to do at first, how to help her. And in the end, I did. I, I felt desperate to do something. I was much older. I was in my early 20s. I confronted her. She wouldn't examine what was going on. She thought I was very rude to confront her like that. I confronted her again. And then I realized rather than confront her, it would be better if I moved, shifted her focus to us, the family. At first, I acknowledged that I knew, we knew how unhappy she was, how sorry I was that she wasn't in theater anymore. And then I mentioned not just how upset we are, because that's a very general word, but I actually painted graphic images, how it affected us. And I don't think she considered it. The penny dropped. And I remember I spoke to her on Saturday morning. On Monday, out of her own free will, she enrolled in Alcoholics Anonymous. And until she died about 15, 16 years later, she never touched a drop of alcohol. So, yeah, credit to her. Was it ever an option for her to go back to Poland, where she had her language, her theatre? Well, at one stage when she was so unhappy, my father didn't tell me at the time. He told me later he considered going back, and they didn't. And it, it, it was a tragedy because he was happy here, she was happy there. Even when she was very difficult, he said, I will never leave her. I will always stay with her. She saved my life. She had so much courage. And incidentally, last December, even though my parents are not alive, she was awarded a medal of courage by the Israeli government and recognized for her bravery in saving Jews. And then marrying my father, he was one of the Jewish people, when the penalty during the war was not only death to her, but death to her family. And my father was arrested by Gestapo a number of times, and each time she managed to retrieve him out of prison. And how did she get him out of the Gestapo? Well, I never fully found out. I wish I asked so many more questions. I don't know why I left it up to them. But I believe that she had whatever jewellery she had, whatever charm she had, she was extremely beautiful and charming. And she would charm her way to get him out. And also, she probably also procured them with food, you know, getting chickens to them or getting butter or getting bread or whatever. That's all I know. I don't know anymore. I wish I did. Maybe you still had the ask no questions phrase in your <laughs> possibly, head. Possibly, <laughs> possibly. Conditioning, it's called. Yes. 
Your mother lost her trade when she got to Australia. What was she doing? It, it was actually very intuitive on her behalf. She had a job as a makeup artist in Channel 9 and then Channel 7. And she was doing it because she was amongst much more sort of animated bohemian people where she felt at home, incidentally, so do I. And, well, at least it gave her the pleasure of being with like-minded people. What did your father do in Australia? He started as a commercial salesman, walking up and down Collingwood and Flinders Lane carrying samples of tablecloth and Manchester. And, and then someone suggested to him, why don't you consider souvenir tea towels, which my father dismissed out of hand. You can't make money out of tea towels. And he then decided to pursue it. So he had them designed here, sent to Poland, because Polish linen was excellent quality and it was very cheap. So they were printed in Poland, shipped back here, and he would give them to cottage. You know, he, he supported cottage industry where the people would cut long lengths of cloth, hem it, and it was Australiana. It went very well. It was maps of Australia. A bit kitschy, but it went well with, with flora and fauna all around it. What did your father tell you about your studies and getting a job? After school, I went to Melbourne Uni and I did a Bachelor of Arts in psychology and double philosophy, which was very interesting. I loved it, but it didn't teach me a trade. My father found an ad in the paper saying that they needed teachers. Would I consider going to teacher's college where you go to school half-time and you teach half-time? So I went to Melbourne Secondary College, got a teaching certificate and taught at Swinburne Tech. What were your students like at Swinburne Tech? They were a lot of fun. It wasn't an academic place. Many of them were quite rough, but I found that having a sense of humour was a wonderful way of forming friendships and goodwill, and I found them extremely funny. So I showed them respect by laughing. <laughs> what did they think of you? They probably thought I was very eccentric, they learned to understand me, especially my accent, and I was teaching English. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes for a joke, they would speak back to me in my accent. I used to say, if you don't work for me, if you don't do the homework, I'll be out of here, and you'll get a boring teacher. So they said, oh, no, no way. Okay, here it is. And I also took them home if they needed to catch up on things. And they would always arrive with a bottle of wine. And I'm a cheap drunk, and I shouldn't drink, but I would be quite tipsy. They would be sober. We would do classes. And they never, ever gossiped about me. You mentioned they brought you some wine. What other gifts did they give to you, Eva? One day a student said to me, Miss, can we have a talk in the car park outside the school? And I was wondering what was so urgent. I went, oh, okay. So we went to the car park and he was very serious. And he said, miss, um, 
I want to make sure that you're safe. I want to make sure that you can look after yourself. So here is a present. And there was an object that was wrapped up in cloth. And I unwrapped it. And there was a gun in it, a small handgun. And I went, oh, my God, what will I do with it? I don't know how to use it. He said, don't worry, I'll teach you. It's nothing. I said, oh, darling, this is the nicest thing I've ever received. I can't keep it. If anyone finds out, I'll be out of my job. Nobody will find out. Nobody will find out. If you don't talk, I won't talk. Nobody will find out. I said, I really appreciate your thoughts. I can't take it. And I think that's the nicest present I ever got from anybody. You taught English and you also taught sex education classes. That was a disaster. (laughs) Um, There was a new rule that it was time to bring sex education into regular classes. There was one teacher who was specialist and she gave us a form with all the terms, sexual terms, and she gave us a box of contraceptives and that was it. Go and face the wolves. So I stood in front of about 40 students, all of them, I don't know, 16, 15. And I was trying to keep a straight face. And I gave a definition of intercourse and vagina and things like that. And then I showed them condoms. I gave them out to students. And I was trying my best to be serious. And suddenly all those kids were pulling up condoms up their leg, right up to their hip. And one of them said, Miss, Miss, come, come, come here. I think that just about fits me. I think that's the right size. Well, by that stage, I was just doubled over in laughing. I had tears streaming down my face. And then I showed them other contraceptives, including an IUD. And suddenly I hear the kids squealing away. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, I wanted to know how it works. And he put it in his nostril and couldn't in get it out. In his nostril. I said, it's not meant to go there, you twit. So I had to take him to the local doctor. And the doctor said, you know, what's wrong with the boy? I said, um, well, we had an unfortunate accident. He's got an IUT up his nose. Oh, my God, he said. Didn't you tell him it doesn't go there? (laughs) You know, it was very funny. (laughs) Did you ever bump into your students after you finished at Swinburne Tech? When I stopped teaching, when my first daughter was born, I would bump into them. I remember one day I locked my daughter, who was about two years old, in the car. It was a boiling hot day. And I was freaking out, thinking, how am I going to get her out of there? So I began looking for a brick to smash the window. And I saw two of my students. And they had safety pin in their nose. And they had tattoos all over their face. They were really rough. And I said, what am I going to do? I've got my child in the car. And they said, stay cool, miss. Just stay cool. Leave it to us. And they went to a local dry cleaners. And they took coat hanger and they came back and within seconds they opened the car. They were real experts and got her out. And those rough men began talking really gently to my daughter, Nina. Hello, little girl. And how are you? Aren't you prettily? I couldn't believe how tender they were. I was so grateful to them. 
You mentioned earlier it was never an option for your family to go back to Poland to live, but how old were you when you eventually went back to visit? I was 24 or 25, and it was so emotional for me, starting with the airport when there were signs, exit or entry, you know, nothing special. But the style of writing, of lettering, was the same as what my father used. And I suddenly had this amazing wave of affection. And then when I went to the toilet and I saw the crinkly, rough (laughs) toilet paper, again, my heart jumped, you know, leapt towards it. And as presents, I brought my suitcase was full of soft toilet paper, (laughs) coffee, sugar, English tea. You knew. I knew that there was a scarcity of those consumer um, products. And I loved it. It was grey. It was communist. There were not many ads. And those that were there were usually only two or three colours. But I loved it because it was familiar. I was back at home. I came back to take back what was mine. In what way? I felt I had to reclaim what belonged to me the last years. I wanted to somehow bring myself up to my current age at that time. I felt violated when we left Poland. For all the rational good reasons that my parents gave me, I just couldn't buy them because... My happiness was there. And I wonder, because I didn't, it wasn't my decision, I was sort of forced out of Poland. That's why I have the nostalgia, the pullback. If the same happened in Australia, where I've had a very happy and good life, but if suddenly Australia was taken away from me, I may well have the same kind of nostalgia, which is a powerful feeling. So when I came here, I loved the possums, but they were pretend squirrels. I thought the eucalypt smelled beautiful, but they never shed their leaves. And Christmas was fake. It wasn't white. It was boiling hot. I had my face in the fridge. <laughs> so. But then when you returned to Poland... Did that become your reality or was there something else that was there? It was the lost reality. It's definitely a sense of loss. I've been back 13 times. I've written about it in the papers, in a literary magazine. I've taken lots of photos. Um, There was a lot to love. And there is a lot to love. That doesn't mean I like everything. There are a lot of things I really don't like and or approve of, naturally. But, you know, the friends I've made, the friends we had, the familiarity, the beautiful landscape, the art galleries, the theatre, which is phenomenal. How can you not love it? And the language. The language is fascinating. It's very rich and complicated. And if you're trying to reclaim this, does that mean that you look at your life as potentially arrested development, Eva? Unfortunately, yes. There is a missing part to the jigsaw puzzle, yes. How do you feel about that? What can I do about it? Nothing. 
I'm glad that six years ago before COVID, I went to Poland and I stayed two months and I happened to have someone's apartment, so I felt like a regular citizen of, of Warsaw. And that was very pleasurable for me. It's a conflict. It's a conflicted emotion. Is that why you keep on going back to Poland? Yes. Will you ever find what you're searching for? I can't. And how do you view yourself? Are you Polish, Australian or somewhere in between? All of it. Polish, Jewish, Australian. And yet my husband was born here, but he's of Greek parents. My daughter, I have two daughters, two wonderful daughters. One has a partner who's half Australian, half Slovenian. The other one is half Scottish and half Mauritian. Oh, hang on. I've just drawn a very detailed map here of your (laughs) family, where you're from. Because in effect, it doesn't matter. People are attracted to each other because of chemistry, because of similar interests. And that completely and utterly crosses boundaries. What are the parts of Australia that you miss when you're in Poland? If I take Qantas, the moment I hear the the Australian accent, I can't help but smile. The fact, the moment I see the road out of the airport, I have a sense also of familiarity and almost coziness. I feel cozy being back. I enjoy the way people are with each other. I love Melbourne. I love the parks. I love all the different sections of the city. The Bohemian, huge part of Melbourne is Bohemian. The sea, the sea coast one, the mountains, the Dandenongs, there's so much variety. And there's so much going on here now. What has Australia given you that Poland might not have been able to give you? I think growing up and feeling free to mix with people of various ethnicities, at first particularly Jewish, that there was no fear, there's no discomfort, there's a sense of freedom that, you know, my accountant is Italian, my uh, hairdresser is Chinese, my daughter's partners are a whole mixture. It's so normal. It's so natural. Um, and it's so, it's being part of the world at large. I appreciate that. Thanks for letting me ask you some questions today, (laughs) Eva. (laughs) Thank you, Lisa. It was a pleasure. My guest on Conversations today has been writer Eva Collins. She's just published a collection of poetry about her experience begrudgingly escaping communist Poland as a child and settling in Australia. It's called Ask No Questions. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.